You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, as we move through 2021 with My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, a reminder that we're getting into our 15th anniversary year. And thank you all who are listening now, whether you've been listening a long time, as some have, or a short time. A reminder about the Patreon, patreon.com slash M-H-C-B-U-Y-P. Get more episodes, get some back episodes that aren't available to the public yet, get advanced episodes. A couple things there that I'm particularly proud of. One is Draft Johnson, special podcast, nearly two hours where we discuss the possibility that Lyndon Johnson was seeking the nomination in 1968, despite his speech saying otherwise. Eventually, that's going to be put on the public site, probably later in the year. But if you want it now, go get it. Sign up for the Patreon. It could be as little as $3 a month. Uh, Another thing that I've done is just opened up one of my scrapbooks. I've been doing a lot of research, particularly on the 1890s. And you know why? Well, I feel like it's a modernizing decade in American politics and pulling a lot of threads. And what I'm doing in that episode is reading the scrapbook of what many called the mauve decade because of the popularity of that color in fashion in that year. 130 content items that right now are not available on the public site. Today, right in time for President's Day, we have Jeremy Anderberg. He is the podcast producer at Art of Manliness. That's artofmanliness.com. It's a men's lifestyle website and also a podcast. He is also the creator and the man behind the readmorebooks.co newsletter where he has book reviews, author interviews, lots of good stuff, book recommendations. If you like to read, readmorebooks.co. Sign up for that. Give him your email. He'll shoot out that newsletter every Friday. Well, I'm here with Jeremy Anderberg, and he is, among other things, a listener to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics and a producer for the Art of Manliness podcast. And Jeremy, thanks for coming on. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We are talking today about a bunch of things, but one of the things that uh, Jeremy explained to me is that uh, you've read a book. Now, can you say it's on every president? Correct. Yeah, I've actually just recently completed the task, so I can now say that I have 
indeed read at least one biography of every president. I finished up just before Inauguration Day this year, so it was good timing. That's great. I mean, presidents are a good way to kind of anchor history. And and believe it or not, there are a few listeners who, who have contacted me over the years in similar projects, and they're at different stages. I don't know where they all are. <laughs> One of them uh, illust- does illustrations and has a great Instagram project, POTUS Pages, and she's got a great page with illustrations of each time she finishes reading a book, she illustrates things about it. Do you have favorite presidents? You know, I, I sort of go in and out. I mean, it's hard not to come away from Lincoln uh, without mm-hmm. just really loving the guy and, and thinking him for sure among the top few as he's always ranked. You know, before I started in, I would have listed Teddy Roosevelt as a favorite. Mm-hmm. Uh, but after reading reading about him, you know, it's interesting. He actually like has so much energy and vitality. It's almost hard to relate to as a, you know, a dad with three kids, like, man, read, reading about him just makes <laughs> me feel kind of tired. Uh, so, you know, that was kind of funny. I, I still, you know, really enjoy him. But the, the presidents I enjoyed reading about the most were sort of the, the curmudgeonly, but also relatable guys. You know, John Adams writes in his journal about being distracted by his kids and about sleeping in too late when he wanted to be doing other things. And you have guys like, you know, William Howard Taft, who I love talking about. He's usually overshadowed by TR. Uh, and his, his presidency was, was not that great, uh, but he was just an incredibly lovable, likable guy, which is part of why he wasn't a great politician. But I, I certainly came to really enjoy him as a person. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I've, with the amount of uh, reading I've done for the cast and things, you get so many different perspectives and changing perspectives on people. And we, we elevate Theodore Roosevelt in our understanding of history, and and we should, of course. But he's he's no kind of guy that I- any average person can relate to because he's like a superhero. I mean, he's not a he's not an average guy, um, even in his time. And um, I was reading recently a biography from George B. McClellan Jr., so the son of the Union general, also became a congressman, later mayor of New York. And has some great stories. And there you get the perspective of Theodore Roosevelt being kind of like a an annoyance in his um in a speech where they were honoring uh, his father in New York City. And Roosevelt just keeps is just almost hyperventilating talking to George B. McClellan, who was mayor at this point, about some slight that was done to him in the nineteen oh four election, which he won overwhelmingly anyway. So TR, like you said, he he really wanted all the attention on him. He always wanted to be the bell of the ball. Um, sort of, you know, almost like a, a Churchill in that regard. They're very similar. These sort of otherworldly characters who uh, are just terribly fun to read about, but incredibly hard to relate to, for sure. I think John Hay at one point tells the the ambassador to France that, you know, you have to remember the president's like a nine-year-old boy. I know that uh, one of the things you had uh, mentioned was that some presidents are easier to read about than others. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when it comes to just the biographies themselves, it's it's really interesting. You get the same guys written about over and over and over again. Of course, you have Washington has thousands of biographies about him, said that Lincoln has, you know, 15, 16,000 plus books about him. Uh, the same is true for FDR, Theodore Roosevelt, etc. Then you get uh, these sort of black holes, particularly in the 19th century, between, you know, Andrew Jackson and Lincoln, 
there's not much in terms of presidential biography. And then there's another stretch after Grant and sort of before McKinley. These are decade-long stretches where it's, it's simply very difficult to find uh, readable modern biographies. And I've, I've sort of wondered why this is. You know, of course, there's a little bit less interest in those guys who aren't as, as well known. But I think part of that that there's this just cycle of, of biographers writing about the same guys. And so modern readers will just read about the same people. Uh, and you have these presidents who just kind of get lost to history very interestingly, even though, you know, no matter what happens to get to the office of president, there's going to be this inevitable, incredible mix of ambition and failure mm. and success and, and drama and corruption yeah, I mean, you know, you, the bearded presidents always get short shrift, um, you know, probably. And I think they're getting more attention because of podcasting. But uh, before that, just short shrift. All of them struggled. All of them had a huge political history. Garfield, you know, is known as just the guy that got shot, if he's known at all. Guy with a beard got shot. But has an incredible career, does an incredible thing to get that nomination. I and mean, we've gotten into that story before on this this cast, you know, nobody had an easy ride. It was not, no, well, maybe Franklin Pierce did. It was, <laughs> it was a hotly <laughs> contested position, both the nomination and general election all the time. Um, see, Pierce probably did. He was probably put there a little bit more. Buchanan really did st- struggle for it and want to be president before he became it. So he was pretty ambitious. Yeah. It's, um, uh, It's never became an office that was not contested hotly by at least two types of parties or or factions within a party. Yeah, even though, you know, the office has vacillated between weak and strong, um, you know, part of it with Mm -hmm. those those presidents who aren't aren't written about as much is that they were just seen as as weak presidents who were kind of bowing to the whims of Congress. Um, But still, you know, you have someone like John Tyler, uh, who thankfully had, had a, a wonderful new biography uh, published about him just last year, uh, but from a university press, interestingly, it was not um, picked up by a major publisher, uh, but it's very well written. And he's a guy who, you know, ultimately pledged his loyalty to the, con- to the Confederacy, had 15 children, the most of any president, including <laughs> one grandson still alive today, I mean, which is just mind-boggling when you think about it, right? I mean, there's there's yeah. so much drama in his story that he's a guy, you know, thankfully he has been written about, but uh, kind of shows that no matter who it is, there's a great story to be written. There's a story of the Grant again. It was just two, and unfortunately the other guy passed away, but he was still playing tennis up until uh, the end there, and we were, uh, we talked about recently we how Tyler tried, you know, there is that story that he became a part of the confederacy in his last year and that he's mm-hmm. actually buried under confederate flag and technically foreign soil some might say I've seen books that say it that way lincoln would never have acknowledged that it was ever foreign soil but but also he did attempt to conduct a peace convention and tried to bring all the sides together now it was all bringing the sides together in a way that james buchanan would like so it was never going to fly but it was, uh, you know, he before he was a Confederate, there was an attempt by Virginia, led by him, to uh, try to put things together. And that should always be a, an important part of his uh, history. One thing I noted that I did not have time to put in a, a previous podcast about the Lincoln train that I did was that he, he also has this comment 
during that convention that really there's a mistake in the Constitution. We should be changing it every 50 years. Every every couple of generations, we should revisit the Constitution. And something that like, so this guy that actually became a confederate also felt what many people feel today, which is that the Constitution should be changed every once in a while. And uh, so anyway, um, yeah, this has been great. We'll, I definitely want to talk to you more about presidents and biographies that you like and everything like that. But let's get into, um, we'll talk about our top obscure facts about presidents. What do we think here? Do you have uh, 10, 8, 5? What do, you, what do you think is best? Perfect. Yeah, I probably have, uh, let's say, 8 or 9, yeah. Let's do 8. Yeah, sure. So we'll, we'll count down from 8, and that'll give you a total of 16. Here we go. And uh, coming in at number 8, Jeremy, what's your obscure fact? Perfect. So this will, again, be Taft. You know, again, I, I love Taft. Um, part of the reason he got into the presidency, decided to go that path versus uh, pursuing a judgeship, which was really his dream. So part of it, uh, because his wife, Nellie, was incredibly ambitious and really wanted that office of the presidency. So he kind of went along with it. And his wife was very much a, an equal and important advisor for him. There were very few presidents um, who really consider their wives to be their equals in in the office and in politics, and Taft was one of those. So he kind of did it for her, at least partially. Uh, but sadly, she had a, a devastating stroke very early in his term, just a, a couple months, I believe, and was rendered un- unable to fulfill that role of advisor. Couldn't talk, had trouble walking, etc. And so Taft, you know, is sort of going into the presidency, relying on his wife being there, that she had this stroke. And so he hated being president, had a, a really terrible four-year experience. Of all the presidents, probably enjoyed it the least and was, was very glad to be able to be done with it. Ultimately did get his judgeship later in life, uh, but I always thought it was interesting that Taft was kind of pushed into it and then just really hated being there. You kind of feel for the poor guy. Yeah, and I did not know that about his wife. You know, I, I, it's always good to learn new things. Um, so my number eight, uh, no president, including Joe Biden, no president has been an only child. Uh, just a quirk of history. Does it say something about the presidency? Um, maybe it does. Maybe it does not. That includes Obama. He does have half-siblings. It also includes Franklin Roosevelt, who had a older, much older half-brother, James Rosie Roosevelt, who died in the 1920s. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, now some of it's statistics. Um, One-child families have grown over in recent time. And so given the years, especially since we have a president that's so old and the last president was older, we're not getting the youngins into the presidency just yet. You're not experiencing some demographic changes that occurred. So let's see here. Number of mothers who reached the end of the childbearing years with one child doubled from 11% in 1976 to 22 in 2015. So there's more only children. That means it's more likely that this trend will be broken. Yeah, interesting. I'm I'm actually an only child. I wonder, you know, if it has to do something with uh, with competition. I didn't have siblings to compete with. Uh, that's obviously it's certainly a part of of elections and campaigning. So yeah, that's interesting. I think it's a mix, and it's it's definitely that nature nurture environment. Uh, what you do, all of those things. Like you know, um, Teddy Roosevelt would shame us because he'd he'd always say like it it's it's about 
it's about what you do and 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 that but uh it does seem to show something now if you're including like half siblings it's hard to say like roosevelt had pretty limited contact with with james rosie so it's it's kind of like uh franklin roosevelt almost was one and um you know so quick run for president jeremy is the is the is the answer yeah yeah no kidding uh coming in at number seven what's your number seven so uh, I, I enjoy talking about our, our presidents with phantom middle names. This is so interesting to me. So both uh, Ulysses S. Grant and Harry S. Truman had middle names that weren't really middle names. So for uh, Harry Truman, the S is truly just the letter S. So his parents uh, could not decide between two uh, middle names that began with S. I believe both were for grandparents. And so they just left it S, just the initial. Uh, so it was always just Harry Truman or sorry, Harry S. Truman. And then with Ulysses Grant, uh, his given name was actually Hiram Ulysses Grant. Famously did not want to have initials that spelled out the word hug and instead started going by <laughs> Ulysses Grant. And the S in that one came actually from uh, someone who was writing his letter of recommendation to West Point, and they mistakenly put in Ulysses S. Grant, and he stuck with it for the rest of his life and was a, a phantom middle name there as well. That's great. Okay. Yeah, I had heard a lot of different things about all of those stories that, you know, different usage of middle names over time and the and the importance of it and the like. Oh, and there was a whole thing about whether Truman sometimes used the dots, sometimes didn't. I I remember getting a question about that. Yeah, so so technically it did not need the dot because it didn't didn't technically stand for anything, right? It was just the letter S. But I but I think throughout his life you you would kind of go back and forth between using the dot or not. Uh, great. Okay, my, coming in at number seven for me, uh, Chester Arthur saves New York during the Civil War. A lot of people, we just think of Chester Arthur as that guy who, you know, became president and, and was vice president after Garfield, but he actually had a career and was um, the engineer-in-chief of the New York State uh, Militia and was appointed by the governor, he had a rank of brigadier general, during the time of the Civil War, he both organized New York State's contribution to the Civil War, which made it possible and meaningful because he was a master as a quartermaster and a master of organization and, and, and bureaucracy and able to create the right uh, systems in place to make sure that troops would be sent down to Washington from New York in a meaningful way, um, corresponding to the size and importance of the state of New York when certain regiments got out of line, like the fire zouaves, famously, um, in both in New York. And then when they went down to Washington, it was Arthur that was brought in to oversee the punishment of those folks and to make sure there was discipline by arresting rowdy members and locking them up. And- Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. No one else kind of had the, the will to do it right, including the leader of the zoops. And that's one contribution, but his most important contribution to kind of saving New York is when the the Confederates had an ironclad ship that was busting through the Union blockade 
And rumors were that it was threatening to come to New York. And perhaps if it had not, you know, the Merrimack had not met up with the monitor in and had that classic battle, it might have. It was Chester Arthur as engineer in chief who was in charge of the defense of the city and created a system of defense for the city's ports that could have stood up to an ironclad because previously they only had two options. It was like this, um, let's take every wooden ship and just swarm it and see what happens. And somebody described it as like, you know, taking a, a thousand Indians uh, up against a uh, a knight in chained mail. And, and uh, you know, of course, that would be a, a metaphor that works better at that time than now. And, and a, right. the other solution was, was to actually sink ships and so prevent this ironclad by making the New York harbors too shallow so it couldn't bombard the city. might have worked. The problem with that is you'd also clog up the port of New York for years to come. It's an easy thing to do at that time, not an easy thing to remove. So Chester Arthur's solution was to have floating, floating cannons um, on, on uh, floating materials that would be able to defend if the if the city was attacked by an an ironclad and keep it off and in the end they didn't need to use that particular thing but chester arthur was crucial for the war effort and for reducing panic in new york city so sometimes we need to think of him as general arthur as well yeah yeah he was certainly a, a fascinating president who is again one of those guys who is most often forgotten generally just remembered for his excellent facial hair <laughs> the best Okay, so coming in at number six. Sure. So I will actually stick with Chester Arthur. You know, this is one of those guys with these presidents who aren't written about as much. It's kind of easy to pull out these great stories um, that have not been uncovered before. So he, Arthur, was sort of, you know, part of the, the Republican machine of, of New York. Uh, was sort of, you know, just one of those corrupt politicians who uh, were alive back in the Gilded Age and uh, was sort of being pulled along by the the bosses of that era and then ended up on Garfield's ticket as because Garfield was so honest and upstanding that the bosses wanted someone who would sort of do their bidding in the White House as well. So, so Arthur ended up there. And then, of course, Garfield was assassinated. So Arthur takes over and the bosses thought that he would just kind of go along with their whims. But he ended up with a really interesting and mysterious pen pal a woman from New York who helped him change his ways from being this corrupt crony to someone who actually worked to get some reform. The Civil Service Commission wouldn't be just putting in the, the people into positions that the bosses wanted. Um, and so he was actually someone who, you know, sort of showed that you could change when you got to the office, that you could actually live up to the dignity of the position. You know, there's this idea that, you know, people can't change, but Arthur is, is actually, I think, a great example that the people can change given the right circumstances and the right push that Arthur had from this pen pal. And he uh, ultimately, I think, only ever met her one time, and it was mm -hmm. sort of an awkward meet, sort of an awkward meeting. Uh, but yeah, this was a woman who had a, a big impact on his life. Probably something that would be quite difficult to do nowadays. I'll write a letter and actually get it read by the president. Uh, true, true. Um, Reagan was answering a couple. He was he was into that, but I, I don't think too many too many get that way <laughs> these days. Or at least they're so highly filtered that they're not not real letters of real advice. Um, let's see. So yeah, my, know, yeah, go ahead. There's a great story about you know Obama. Um, I don't know if it was it was daily or weekly, but it insisted actually that he read 
somewhere, you know, a handful of letters from real constituents that were a good mix of their positive and, and negative towards him. And he actually had um, a person, I think an, an actual advisor, sort of going through and, and picking things for him to look at. So that's uh, kind of an interesting story. Yeah, great. Um, let's see. So I'm on six. Clinton was at one time seen as a person prone to exaggeration. We have this image now of Bill Clinton either as um, either people despise him, you know, and just say, oh, God, that guy, you know, because they're of one side of politics. Or maybe you see him as kind of this elder statesman type figure who used to be president. Um, but I think people forget the early kind of Clinton when he came on the scene and there was and it was reported a lot in the press about some of his famous exaggerations. Campaigning in Iowa, Clinton said that he had heard about the legendary Iowa caucuses since he was a little boy. But when he was a little boy, that Iowa caucus was not important at all, and no one would have heard about it until the 1970s when he entered college. So unless he was a little boy in college, that wasn't the case. Um, sure. In an education conference in New York, Clinton claimed, I suppose I had spent more time in classrooms than any previous president glossing over Woodrow Wilson, who spent 30 years as a professor. Uh, a computer search showed that since taking office, Clinton used the term that something was a really big deal, in quotes, more than 75 times to describe the effects of a deficit on the ability to invest in education, on a Western Buffalo preserve, the joys of home ownership, the dangers of guns, really big deal. Some of his exaggerations continued even as he was out of office. Um, he said to one reporter that was reported a lot, nobody believes I got out of that for free. I left the White House $16 million in debt. But typically, um, that, then that figure was widely, widely cited. But, of course, most of that debt was legal bills that had been paid for by a special legal fund and eventually with books and speeches that debt was pretty quickly. I think by the time of 2004, so he left office in 2001, the debt was completely retired. A couple other things. He claimed that uh, he uh, had apologized to Lewinsky. They had never talked after the affair. He only apologized publicly. So it is it is interesting. I think it's just an interesting thing to point out because, you know, of course, we've had a president where some of these exaggerations seem small in comparison, but uh, he ain't the only one. Yeah, for being, you know, Clinton was a, a political animal from pretty much the day he was born. So it's certainly not surprising that he would learn that uh, that skill of exaggeration early on and, and use it widely. Let's go to number five. Sure. So, you know, with, with Tyler, when we were talking about him, we briefly touched on the fact that he sort of convened this or tried to convene this convention prior to the Civil War. And it kind of shows the importance of, of ex-presidents. So Nixon was actually the last president um, to be president during a period in which no ex-presidents were alive. So he actually went through the Watergate scandal with no ex-presidents to seek counsel from, uh, which I think is really interesting. You know, had there been other ex-presidents alive, whether you know, it was Kennedy or Eisenhower or some of these uh, other folks who succumbed to, to early deaths, you know, would that have been different? Who knows? And there's certainly a lot made about the the president's club in today's mm -hmm. world, especially since, since, of course, they're getting, you know, just the world's best health care and living a lot longer. So it's not likely uh, to happen anytime soon, I imagine. Um, but it certainly goes to show the, the power 
of the ex-presidency as well. And yeah, you, just, you know, you kind of wonder, would Watergate have turned out differently had um, Nixon been able to convene with some of the, the guys who had come before? Oh, it's a fascinating question. That's a good one. Thanks, Jeremy. That's a good one. Um, and it's a fascinating question because one of the things that did occur, there was a little bit on the edges of that, is that they were the new research has uncovered that, um, and the tapes, um, have uncovered that they were contacting Lyndon Johnson right before he died, um, and trying, they, the Nixon and, uh, Haldeman and others, you know, really wanted Lyndon Johnson to tamp down the Democratic Congress in a way that he could because he had a great influence over the Southern members of the, the Congress. And then the whole Watergate Commission was led by, um, Senator from uh, North Carolina. Uh, so uh, LBJ rebuffed. And, you know, one of the things they actually almost came near to blackmailing him saying, yeah, we'll release things about what you you had bugged our plane or or um, at least the allegations that had happened. And and you had spied on us if you don't, um, you know, defend us in Watergate. And of course, like Lynn Johnson be the wrong guy to do that too is basically the reaction. But I don't know if he would have been alive though longer in 74, say, if he would have been able to broker some compromise. And then yes, would the others like Eisenhower been able to uh, give him advice? That's a, it goes in a million directions. The other thing is how Nixon then behaved as an ex-president. Like, I guess not having the experience of ever right. having one, he became a kind of a thorn in the side of, um, of Reagan, unwelcome guest in the White House. Nancy didn't want him there because he had he had been bad for Reagan on certain things and um, the the IMF treaty. And uh, then George W. Bush had a lot of tensions with him. He did end up helping out Clinton a lot. <laughs> Clinton liked him. That yeah, was a- <laughs> interestingly, yeah, yeah, they were kind of oddly buddies there. Yeah. Let's see. So now, of course, I lost. We're on five, right? So this is uh, my number five. Was um. Thomas Jefferson's secret weapon, which were these casual orchestrated dinners that he would have. Uh, not talked about a lot. Uh, Jefferson's presidency outside the Louisiana Purchase isn't often discussed a lot. But one of the things that made his presidency, you know, he's a two-termer, and except for that embargo bit at the end, was pretty successful. Um, and one of the reasons he was able to control events was a very passive Jeffersonian way, which was to have these dinners a very casual dinner. Uh, he'd invite congressmen, but also writers. His daughter Martha would be there. Uh, he would wear very casual clothes, at least for the time. He's in his 60s at this point. Twilled corduroy breeches, scarlet embroidered waistcoat under a more somberly colored coat, kind of uh, less costly apparel than uh, people may wear. Sometimes the servants were better dressed than he. He'd invite anyone who was traveling, senators. Um, there would be lots of wine. But one of the interesting innovations that he had at these dinners is he wanted to be sure the guests could talk to each other, that it wasn't stuffy. So here's what one account says. Jefferson dearly loved gadgets as long as they served a practical purpose. Typical in his dining room was the custom of placing between two guests a sort of dumb waiter, a small wooden stand with shelves, upon which servants placed the food and then were dismissed, so that the flow of conversation would continue without interruption. Interesting. So, so he was quite the social engineer. 
That's right. That's right. And there's other functions that I don't want to get into all the functions of these dumb waiters. But essentially, the, the it requires no interruption from from that servant as a uh, food is placed. Yeah, I think this had a lot to do. So um, anyone who follows like reality TV and uh, watches, say, a Big Brother or Survivor TV show, or anybody that's worked in the higher levels of any company on earth, I think, you know, can be pretty aware, or if they've had a political experience, of course, they could be pretty aware that, like, so much of it is what information you have, what's coming your way, what's going to damage you, what does this person think? Jefferson, in a very quiet and unassuming way, had it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's uh, go to number four. Sure. So I've done some, some writing and researching into president's hobbies uh, for an, an Art of Manliness article. And one that was especially interesting to me was Rutherford Hayes. So he's a name that most people do not recognize. One of the least recognizable, actually, when it comes to, to polls about uh, presidents, you know, people know from the past. So Hayes had this really interesting obsession with genealogy. Uh, there's one letter that I love. This was in a, a letter to a relative. He says, I have an attack of the genealogical mania. It came <laughs> on about 10 days ago, super induced by reading a family tree, which a friend sent me. It is in a violent form, but I trust it will soon abate. So even when he was president, he would take time off one to two days away from the office to scout around Ohio and New England countryside looking for lost relatives and genealogical libraries, uh, which, you know, of course, back then when you're, when you're out of office, you're truly out of office. So he would, you know, fully be away from work and go on these, these genealogical uh, ad- adventures. And it was a, a thing that he loved from uh, as a young boy all the way until he died. Um, you know, wow. generally president, presidents have more uh, active, you know, well-known hobby, golf, you know, which I'll get into later. But yeah, this genealogy is very interesting to come across. Well, we're all getting into it. You know, a lot of us are going on ancestry and the like. Yeah, it's certainly easier nowadays. You know, he oh, he yeah. had to go tromping around dirt roads, you know, <laughs> actually looking for the houses of the, the people he's looking for. So yeah, it was certainly a more active pursuit back then. It is funny how everything's so easier. Even historical research is easier, right? I mean, I, I've always said, like, I wouldn't be able to do the podcast that I do without the internet. I mean, it would be so much harder. So that was number four. Let's see. So number four is, um, I don't know if a lot of people are aware of it, but McKinley, as governor of Ohio, signed an anti-lynching bill that was progressive for its time and was an inspiration to other states you think about Ohio. Now, McKinley's going to become governor in the 1890s. Uh, this is the position that he holds before he's president. But after he's in Congress, he passes a tariff and then is voted out of office, then is voted in as Ohio governor. Um, you know, think of Ohio. It's a northern state. And you don't think of it um, as, as one where lynchings would occur. But sadly, it was. His legislation that he signed, um, it was something that he pushed hard for. And generally, having served in the Union Army during the Civil War, McKinley took the cause of African-American emancipation, their later voting, and their rights very seriously. 
Yeah, that, that I assume that had to have been among the first anti-lynching measures. Do you know? Yeah, you know what? Uh, maybe I'll come in and do uh, an edit on it. I'm pretty sure it was the first or first significant state, you know, state to actually yeah. uh, pass one. Okay, from the editor's desk, uh, the Smith Act, named for Harry Smith, who was an African-American state legislator from Cleveland, Ohio, also supported by Governor William McKinley right at the time, as he's one of many names being mentioned for the presidency. The Smith Act allowed victims of lynchings and their families to sue county governments. Victims could also sue for up to $1,000, while family members were permitted to sue for up to $5,000. The bill resulted from at least six lynchings of African Americans in Ohio during the 1890s. I haven't been able to determine if it was the first of any type of law. What I do know is the first law with teeth. It was the most stringent anti-lynching law in the United States at any state at the time. William McKinley would go on as president to speak out against the issue. He was not able to get a bill through Congress, but he would speak out on a variety of things. One is um, the lynching didn't just affect African-Americans, that there were in 1899, he speaks forcefully about a group of Italian-Americans that are lynched in Mississippi uh, and also recommends to Congress legislation that if a crime is done against a foreign national, then that crime should be prosecuted by the federal rather than the state government. That effort was not successful, but the presidential voice did push the issue not often spoken about by presidents. Let's see, that was number four. So now the number three... Obscure fact about presidents is? Sure. So let's stick within the sort of hobby theme. Since uh, golfing was sort of first introduced to America in a big way back in the early 20th century, only three presidents have not played golf. That would be Herbert Hoover, who was more of a, a fly fisherman. Harry Truman uh, just never got around to enjoying the game. And also uh, Jimmy Carter, kind of in that same boat, uh, was not much of a a hobbyist guy and didn't care much for uh, relaxing in general. But those are the only three. And certainly golfing gets a ton of attention oh, yes. in the media. Eisenhower famously golfed, you know, some 800 <laughs> times, I think, over the course of his eight years. Even Woodrow Wilson was a huge golfer, golfed um, possibly upwards of a thousand times during his really eight and a half years of being healthy in the presidency. And so, you know, there's, there's always talk about it, but really, man, the, the presidency is a tough job and they, they need some, some breaks too. And they're often either, you know, with, with friends or advisors, but many of the presidents have rules about uh, talking politics on the links. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's really interesting that, that they all sort of congregate around this, this one hobby. Yeah. It, it strikes me a couple of things. One is the Hoover. Hoover surprised me there because um, he, th he, he feels like a golfy guy, but some of that's just looking at the past with our modern eyes. He was also, yeah. I guess, a busybody and had other things to do, you know. <laughs> he was, yeah, he, he certainly fits that sort of uh, aristocratic mold of how golf was viewed back then. Mm. Uh, but yeah, never never got around to it. And of course, FDR, you know, never never played in office, but he was a big-time golfer before contracting polio. There's this tension, and you see it, of course, even uh, certainly with the last president, you, you, always reporting his golf. Clinton, I think various advisors said, get the 
heck off that golf course. Every time you're seen on TV golfing with people, you just lost Joe America, you know. So, um, and and I think it was the worst. Always the um, the downward pings in Trump's presidency was, you know, at least from opponents' point of view, when they had the images of him playing golf. So it's not a great sport for populism because even though a lot of Americans play it and more Americans play now and Tiger Woods brought a lot of popularity to sport, it's still a very elite game. And of course it requires money and a lot of time. But on the other hand, Mm -hmm. I can see the tension because first of all, it's an elite game. So that's how many of these politicians met their power broker friends and, and socialized with them. There's that force field of politics you describe like, Okay, I can finally relax and not talk politics and be away from things, which is the president's crave. I know that was part of the Clinton uh, attraction to it. So it's just funny tension between a game. I was like, the reality is... um I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. You know, Obama, for his popularity, was much better off playing basketball. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, his his basketball uh, skills are wonderfully highlighted in David Moranis' biography of him, uh, if people are interested in that. That's great. So I am a number three. Uh, This one's a little gory, but uh, or a little um, sad, really. But um, Benjamin Harrison and his father's remains. Benjamin Harrison actually, before he was president, had to deal with a situation where his father's body had been grave-robbed. And this is John Scott Harrison, who is the son of President William Henry Harrison. Benjamin Harrison, of course, is William Henry Harrison's grandson, previous president. Um, And it just highlights what was going on at the time in 1878, that um, the family, of course, um, Benjamin Harrison and his brother was... um, were, of course, very sad, and when their father passed, the father had had some limited political experience, but mostly mostly was just a farmer in the community, and there had been this grave robbing trend, and so they took steps to um, both encase the body in cement and also to hire a watchman to watch over their father's body. When then they hear about um, this... Um, other case where a grave had been robbed and and, be, and Benjamin Harrison and the brother go to uh, actually Benjamin Harrison's brother and and so what was going on is there were grave rob- robbers who would take bodies and then sell them to the local medical colleges for money and the money was such that this was quite an enterprise and people had to take steps to protect 
Benjamin Harrison's brother is helping out with another case, goes to the medical college. They start looking at the recent bodies to try to see if one had been. And then, lo and behold, there's his father. They just buried the day before. Oh, fascinating. Now, the watchman could not be found. They somehow got around the, um, the they think the watchman probably was involved. He could never be found again. Um, the the uh, They think they got around the cement and everything like that and were able to... Um, Harrison had to go deal with this, deal with the medical college, see his father reburied. And it became a, um, the one thing that occurred from it is that Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Iowa, and Michigan updated their anatomy acts to include stringent prosecution of gravediggers and to authorize the use of unclaimed corpses for, that the state had for the medical colleges so that they would not go pursuing this illicit channel. Uh, interesting. Yeah, grave robbing is certainly an interesting little piece of American history. And back then, you know, medical students often had to provide their own bodies. It was in this, in this weird way, sort of encouraged, you know, to go grave robbing. Yeah, it's really interesting. Coming in at number, um, yeah, and I guess it also adds a streak of, uh, what, why did I find it interesting too? It adds this streak of misfortune in, a, in, a, in Benjamin Harrison, who became kind of one of the more have have one of the more unfortunate presidencies. Yeah, yeah. So we're coming in at uh, number two, most obscure fact, presidential history. Talked uh, about Martin Van Buren. So he is largely forgotten uh, today, came right after Andrew Jackson was sort of his heir apparent. And he is largely responsible for today's two-party system. So before that, he had a, a lot of really regional coalitions. Uh, there was not this grand political organization. And so you had uh, folks who weren't necessarily, you know, winning uh, majorities in the popular vote. There were, you know, issues with the electoral system, of course. So Van Buren comes along. He's a really brilliant politician, was sort of one of the first career politicians, actually, and came to realize that an, a national organized political party would have much better success winning elections than sticking with these regional factions. So he uh, got all the state parties together and worked for Andrew Jackson. Of course, didn't get him in on his first attempt. I believe that was 1824 when uh, John Quincy won. Uh, But then later got him him into office twice and then uh, did not win his own re-election bid. But that two-party system has remained today. He sort of realized that, you know, even if concessions have to be made, we will get the larger part of our priorities accomplished by doing it this way versus breaking down into smaller and smaller interest groups. So, you know, the name, again, is not not well known, uh, but it's someone who is deeply responsible for how our national politics play out even today. Old Kinderhook. Yeah, yeah. Um, created the two parties. Created the two parties. Yeah, it is. That's that's fascinating because absent that, you could have had more fracturing, more local parties, and the Whigs really had a lot of local elements. Obviously, all the parties split. In, in 1860, the Democrats aren't able to hold on to Van Buren's old tradition that year, but they do come together after the war again and have a fairly consistent party yeah it's very it's very interesting to see that um van buren who gives you really like the kind of rnc dnc if we assume the rnc were inheritors yeah, of yeah a yeah. lot of the wig and free soil um 
Interesting times. Yeah, I'm sure there could be 20 of them about Van Buren, but, you know, we don't have, we only have eight to talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's a really interesting guy. He certainly is someone who deserves uh, a fresh biography, definitely. Um, my number two is uh, James Monroe being uh, meeting Napoleon and being the only U.S. president to have actually met, and I'll talk about that, uh, met Napoleon. And it's interesting, James Monroe, of course, is the envoy to France. And while Napoleon is leading France, and early on in um, in Napoleon's uh, consulship, James Monroe meets him. And at this time, there's, there's a lot of optimism about that relationship, but perhaps a little bit of caution, because Napoleon, after all, has trampled over many armies and countries and, and united uh, France in a, in a way. Um, he describes the meeting between James Monroe himself and, uh, and Napoleon. After dinner, when we retired to the salon, the first consul came up to me and asked whether the federal city, Washington, D.C., grew that much. I told him it did. How many inhabitants has it? It is just commencing. There are two cities near it, one above, the other below, on the Great River Potomac, which two cities have counted with the federal city would make a respectable town. Now, I find this conversation interesting because Monroe has to be careful. He doesn't want to convey that, hey, we're a weak little republic on the Atlantic here, which really the Washington city at that time, still not fully built up. He's having to count uh, what I guess is Alexandria and Georgetown within its uh, numbers to make it uh, big. And then Napoleon asks, well, Mr. Jefferson, how old is he? (laughs) About 60. Is he married or single? He's not married. Then Napoleon says of Jefferson, he is a boy. No, no, uh, Monroe says he is a widower. Has he children, Napoleon asks? Yes, two daughters who are married. Does he always reside in the federal city? Generally. Are the public buildings these commodious, those for the Congress and the President especially? They are. You, the Americans, did brilliant things in your war with England. You will do the same again. We shall, Monroe said, I am persuaded, always behave well when it shall be our lot to be in war. So it's interesting that Monroe's having this conversation with somebody who definitely is a dictator, um, whatever whatever respect in history we have for him. And he has to be real careful because he wants to not show weakness. And at the same time, Napoleon, this little conversation is trying to get at like is jefferson for real is he really a person of substance like and of course napoleon has these opinions is corsican type of he's a boy if he's not married you know he has no kids you know that kind of thing and then also um trying to suss out the the in one fireplace conversation try to suss out the u.s defenses but also trying to goad him into some kind of statement about like yeah we're we're gonna go to war with england which monroe certainly doesn't want to make few more things later he would meet again um when um when he's crowned emperor monroe will be at that ceremony but relations weren't as good and monroe was kind of put in the back and the relationship between the republicans the jeffersonian republicans in america and napoleon will sour and they really do view him as a tyrant a usurper a dictator of what could have been otherwise a republican democratic uh france 
And they will both celebrate in letters, Jefferson and Monroe, when Napoleon is defeated in Waterloo, because that could have been whatever dealings we had with the Louisiana Purchase early in the decade, that could have been an existential threat to the United States. So that relationship changed. It's worthwhile saying that James Monroe is the only president to have met Napoleon. John Quincy Adams sees him. So, you know, I guess this is this is my relationship with Bill Clinton, uh-huh. right? I, 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 uh, I have not met Bill Clinton. I have not met Bill Clinton, but I have seen him. And that's the that's the John Quincy Adams. He was at a theater where Napoleon was at one point during a stay in France. And so, yeah, coming in number two, um, James Monroe and Napoleon. Interesting. All right. I, I don't know if I'll get a drumroll sound, but maybe I will. For, uh, for number one, we'll get the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics drummer. Jeremy, what's your number one obscure fact? Perfect. Sure. So we have had one uh, POW become president, and that was Andrew Jackson. He's not generally thought of as being part of that revolutionary founding father generation. Uh, But he was actually a teenage boy during the war, just 13 years old, uh, living in the Carolinas, and was taken prisoner, uh, both him and his brother, and did not have a good experience, was was beaten and treated very poorly. Uh, but ultimately, his mother arranged uh, a prisoner um, exchange. And so uh, him and his brother were released. But then, sadly, his, his brother passed away. His mother then passed away during the course of the war as well. And so because of the Revolutionary War, Jackson was an orphan as a young boy. And that certainly <clears throat> uh, impacted his, his life and presidency and his later actions towards the Native Americans. You have to assume that there's some thought there as well. And so, yeah, he's the only POW to then become president. And of course, uh, could have had another one had John McCain won uh, against Barack Obama. But Jackson is the only one and the Revolutionary War played a bigger part in his life than I think we, we generally realize today. That's a great point. That's a great point. I, I recall a quote from him when the annexation of Texas was considered, which is an issue that that split him and Buchanan. I'm sorry, him and Van mm-hmm. Buren. And um, he had said, you know, the British already got a Kennedy at our north. We don't want a Kennedy at our at our south. And it's that hatred of the British that stuck with him, uh, as would with any of us if we got captured and you know didn't. Um, I mean, you, that's yeah. great. Um, my n- number one obscure fact, and it's it's only. I, I had a hard time really ranking any of these, but FDR picked the gold price by picking a lucky number. And this, uh, you know, during uh, FDR's old, um, FDR's uh, early presidency, he tried a number of ideas. One was to hoard gold. In other words, it became illegal to actually own gold in the United States. You had to give that up to the U.S. government. This was an attempt to get people to stop, you know, taking money out of banks and just holding on to gold during the Depression to get some money into the economy. And that meant that the government had to set a price for what that gold would be since they were, in in effect, taking over. And how it was decided, according to his Treasury Secretary, Henry Morgenthau, who also was his neighbor in Westchester County, New York, I believe it was on Friday, that we raised the price 21 cents. And the president said, it is a lucky number because it is three times seven. 
If anybody ever knew how we really set the gold price through a combination of lucky numbers, I think that they really would be frightened. That's, that's marvelous. Yeah. Anyway, so there it is. Uh, the the political magician. Uh, I think we see the New Deal as, um, you know, a kind of like oh, brilliant masterstroke to fight the economy. Actually, it was about at minimum uh, thirty different things that were being tried. <laughs> And uh, some of them may have worked. Some of them may have felt good at the time or helped people at the time badly needed that help. Uh, and some some may have not have worked. But a lot of it was even somewhat contradictory, like hoarding gold and and um, and, and that or somewhat. Uh, um, yeah, I think I think people would certainly be surprised to learn just how much of American history comes down to just random chance things sort of fall in line or decisions sort of uh, get made by default. And there are, are a lot of, uh, you know, big, big things that have happened that certainly were not necessarily planned out and didn't necessarily happen just the way that they were expected to, for sure. Well, this is great. These are all little factoids, too, that I think I, I end up showing up on various my history episodes where they're where they're appropriate. Did you want to share your bonus one that you had, or is it uh, is it is it worthy? Sure, yeah, I can do that. So um, you know, the other it's kind of back in the this hobby realm just so fascinates me how presidents spend their their spare time. And Herbert Hoover was a master fly fisherman. Um, he was a guy grew up in uh, the woods of Iowa. Um, back before it was all farmland and became really an avid outdoorsman and both him and his wife uh, traveled the world and, and had these really interesting outdoorsy pursuits. And he really leaned into the fishing. So post-presidency, he even wrote a book called Fishing for Fun and to Wash Your Soul, which I think is just a wonderful title. You, you kind of get the idea that of the impact that fishing had on his life. And there was even um, a senator, I believe a modern senator who studied his life, who said Herbert Hoover was never more at peace than when he was standing in an Oregon stream in search of rainbow trout or trolling off the coast of Florida for fighting fish. Public service was his vocation, but fishing was his respite from a hectic world. Um, it just you know, goes to show that, man, the, the, the presidents are people, too, and they have interests and hobbies just like we do. Yeah, no, certainly, um, certainly. I think like uh, Hoover's one that needs to be humanized. Yeah, um, yeah. He needs a friend in history. Um, it's not that we can't be rightly critical of some of the steps or lack of steps uh, around the Great Depression, but he's somebody that really was a lot more human than the reports um, reports reveal. Yeah, if I had one that was a bonus, I'd I'd also go with Hoover and that. Um, uh, one one of Hoover's last moments of his presidency was convincing his own secretary to not withdraw money from the banks. Every, everyone was withdrawing money from the banks, including Hoover's own secretary. And he writes this note like, please don't take your money out of the banking system. Um, the Riggs Bank in, in D.C., which is still there, is a uh, is, is a good bank and very and very liquid. Don't worry. Um, of course, the, his own secretary did have to withdraw that money. He was just too afraid during the panic that beset him at the last days of his presidency. Well, this has been great. What uh, Do you have certain favorite biographies? Um, what would you like to say about those? Sure, yeah. So I actually have um, 
on President's Day an Artemis article going up about my 10 favorite biographies of, of all of those that I've read. Um, so I won't give away all of them here. They can go check that out at artemanliness.com. But it certainly includes uh, Ron Chernow's biographies of, of George Washington and Ulysses Grant. I will say, you know, he, he appears on, on almost any list like this mm-hmm. for, good, mm-hmm. for good reason. Um, you know, his, his books, they're not necessarily easy reading. They do take effort and certainly a, an investment of time. Uh, but the way he penetrates the psyches of his characters is, I think, unmatched among presidential biographers and, and his books. All of them are well worth reading. I actually think Grant is his best of the bunch. Um, so certainly, certainly give that a read. Uh, it's impossible to not include the Edmund Morris TR trilogy in in that list of, of favorite books. Of course, um, you know if, if anyone just passed away recently. Yeah. Yes. Oh no, he no wait. That's was that him? It was. That yep. Just just last year. Yeah. 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 yeah and you know, it it, it takes a, a very special kind of writer to capture TR's vitality and energy, and uh, Morris did that in spades. And certainly Candace Millard also does in River of Doubt. Um, so that's on the list. You know, I would actually, uh, this isn't on my, you know, my official top 10, but I would put mm-hmm. uh, Kenneth White's book on Hoover near the top, really humanized him in just a fascinating way. And it turns out Hoover, you know, is one of the real heroes of World War One. Um, and though we like to lay the blame of the depression on him, it just, you know, it turns out that there are, are greater forces at play than just the one man in the Oval Office. And so I think that is a great book to um, provide context for Hoover's life and decision making. Um, look at my list. That's great. Look at my, my shelves here. I really loved um, <laughs> Robert Dalek's biography of John Kennedy and Unfinished Life. You know, for all the books about Kennedy, there are surprisingly few cradle-to-grave biographies of him. You have all these other sort of ancillary characters, other Kennedy family members. But for just a kind of Mm -hmm. a a traditional biography of JFK, there just are not that many. And I think Dalek did a great job uncovering, you know, just how big a deal those medical issues were, the, you know, regrettable personal life stuff, and also sort of how how he came into his own as a as a real leader in those especially those last uh, few months of his life so those are uh, a yeah. handful of must reads for sure yeah those are great i mean uh and i haven't even read um uh all of of course the ed morris and um and the churnouts but uh the others uh have to pick up great stuff um yeah i wonder about with kennedy if it was a problem of the family not talking but maybe they would talk to dalek or dalek would find it yeah, uh, that, I, that's probably a lot of hidden. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, you know, the, I mean, the the last Kennedy sibling just passed away last year, the Gene Kennedy, I believe. Um, so there that's was right. certainly, you know, family around to kind of say no to to access the family records and and things like that. So I I am sure that that is part of it, and I know Dalek did uh, a ton of research, particularly into the the medical realm, um, and did as much as he could. You know, there's still a lot of classified top secret stuff with Kennedy as well. So we'll see if we ever, if we ever really get to the, the, the definitive, you know, insider Kennedy bio, we'll see. There's a number of presidents, um, Martin Van Buren, where their letters were burnt. Yeah. 
And yeah. um, this is just a thing. Like, I guess we're we're not going to be able to do this. I guess if we live in France, we're right. We're allowed. We're allowed by law to uh, to disappear. But uh, other than but for Americans, I don't think we'll ever be. There's so much on all of us, and letters sent and stored in servers. Yeah. But I guess back then you could do that sort of thing. I guess that's a little bit of a challenge with some presidents. It is, yeah, and I I think um, yeah, there's there's definitely a few where. Just all the letters, all the documentation was burned. It was pretty common to burn one's letters back then. Um, I think Millard Fillmore might have been in that camp. He is sorely in need of a new biography, but it's just hard to come up with that inside, you know, personal life to, to write something interesting. So it definitely pro- plays a role. Yeah, but now, you know, it has to be easier than ever. You think of just the way that Trump lived on Twitter. I mean, how easy is it going to be to kind of write about that presidency, it certainly uh, only gets easier. And everybody writes a book. The Bush presidency, everybody. I got a book. You got a book from his press secretary. Some of them before he even leaves office now. So yeah. there's so much. I had a conversation with uh, Thomas Oliphant about Kennedy. Sure. And he said, you you have no idea the buckets and draws of, of papers that some future generation has to go through because we don't have time. Like, there's no... Maybe artificial intelligence will be able to do it better because um, all of these things that they found and looked through and found different takes on things from actually reading the letters, like one of them was that Kennedy was really pushing back on the press, like in a way that, say, a Trump did publicly, he was doing a lot of that privately and so was Robert Kennedy. Like, don't write this letter. How dare you, you know, you're, you, you know, attacking columnists, columnists and things. Again, not publicly, yeah. which, which does change the dimensions a lot. But uh, they found a lot of papers and just a lot of things that there's so much more paper on presidents and um, from, from his time out um, than you get on the others. Yeah. Uh, so that's interesting. And certainly why, you know, why Robert Caro had spent 50 years well, writing about Lyndon Johnson uh, because <laughs> one of his defining mantra is turn every page. So Caro spends years in the Lyndon Johnson library, literally reading millions of pages of papers. I mean, it's just, it's mind boggling to even think about um, the undertaking that that is. He keeps this humble because I think it's always, he keeps this humble because he's found so many things and he's, and he's proven things or disproven or put things back into doubt that all the stories we have about presidents, you know, we have to check ourselves. I have to do it. We all have to do it. Like, we, it's fine to tell a story and we go with what we know, but it's keeping a little bit of doubt that, hey, you know, it could be we, we're listening to political opponents. Um, is there anything else that you were like, oh, I wish I brought this up? Um, you know, I, I just interestingly, you know, so I in the course of this project, I started back in 2016 uh, after the election of Trump, I was just sort of intellectually curious about, you know, how did we get to here? How did the presidency get here? Does it matter? Uh, things like that, right? Are there other traits that make good presidents, bad presidents, et cetera? So I didn't plan it to sort of encompass, you know, the one four-year term of the presidency. But of course, as the 2020 election approached, I found some urgency in the project and decided to finish before Inauguration Day. Uh, in that time, I had two kids. Um, back in 2016, my, <laughs> my first kid was just a year old. Um, so I'm sort of always thinking about the role of, of fathers when it comes to presidents and what kind of fathers the presidents were. So personally, you know, it was, just, it was really moving to see um, sort of how, how ambition 
always requires personal sacrifice. And there are really only a, a handful of presidents who were good fathers, right? And they would sort of admit that, that they missed a lot because of their role. And so as a dad, you know, I was really thinking a lot about, okay, certainly I have ambitions, but, um, you know, what's the grand importance of that compared to being there for my kids to being a dad? And then interestingly, I sort of in the same course of that, I went from being pretty politically apathetic, actually, to now being a little more politically involved. I actually did some volunteering for a campaign in 2020. And I really came to see that the politics do matter, that in the grand scheme of things, when it comes to social movements, that the real change almost always happens through politics. And so there were really some interesting, you know, real personal changes that came about from this project that I that I don't think would have happened otherwise. That's great. That's great. And Jeremy, anything else that you'd like you want um, to mention, like uh, we could like Art of Manliness. I know you're a producer for that podcast. Uh, maybe some of our listeners would like to hear more about that. Or do you have any blogs or books or anything else? Yeah. So uh, my day job is with the Art of Manliness dot com. That's uh, Art of Manliness dot com. And we're also a podcast, uh, just kind of a general men's lifestyle magazine. So we do a lot of how to's, a lot of history, philosophy, music and books, all kinds of fun stuff. So people can check that out and find all of my writing there. I also have a weekly uh, bookish newsletter that can be found at readmorebooks.co. That newsletter goes out on Fridays, and I do book reviews and author interviews and lists, all kinds of fun stuff like that. So, Readmorebooks.co. You've heard it here, so check that out. Jeremy Anderberg, thanks so much for coming on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Hey, thank you. It was a real pleasure on my end. Thanks to Jeremy Anderberg for coming on the show. And remember, that's readmorebooks.co. And a reminder about the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics Patreon. Patreon.com slash M-H-C-B-U-Y-P. Thanks for listening. how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own stay on top of the latest financial and market news with yahoo finance a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day you'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world all in three minutes or less right after markets close check out yahoo finance wherever you get your podcasts that's yahoo finance wherever you get your podcasts